Uh, welcome to In Conversations this week. Our, um, our guest is Nick Dunney, uh, actor and screenwriter. Nick, thank you very much for coming in and doing this with us. You're very welcome. Um, I suppose first off, can you tell us a bit about growing up in London? Yeah, well, uh, do you mean in terms of acting? Or I know, just, just, your, just, down, just actually just um, growing up there anyway. Well, I kind of, I was there for years. I mean, I was born there. Actually, I did live in France for about a year when I was five. And I came back to London and I couldn't speak any English because I was five, so that was always a bit peculiar. So I did feel like I was always slightly a bit odd then. Where in France? Well, I went to a place called Toire, if you know Don't that. Know. Uh, it's near the, in the Loire Valley. I okay. there for a year. My dad was teaching French um, in England, but then he went out to be working for an assistant, you know, out there. Yeah, yeah. So we went out there for a year as a kind of family thing, so I grew up there for a bit. And that was kind of mad, watching all the people kind of, you know, bringing in the rabbits from the fields and cutting their heads off. <laughs> you know, casually do. Yes, yeah, you do, do yeah. Which you didn't do in London very often because you couldn't find any rabbits because they're all dying of smog infested, whatever, you know. So, um, and then, then, yeah, but then I grew up, and I grew up in North London <clears throat> in a very kind of like regular house and, you know, and uh, went to regular schools and met regular people and did mad things really and then I realised eventually that what was going on was because then I realised when you're in school you're supposed to do this thing called learning apparently and apparently you have to study things and do this so I've heard i heard there's a yeah. rumour going around that's what you have to do and uh, but I found that I wasn't really interested in that you would find a lot of people are very, very odd yeah. um, maybe schools are in fact wrong ideas maybe perhaps maybe there's another way they should look at them maybe but execute their their things maybe just a little bit in better. a different way in a different way yeah, yeah different yeah. style could or have acknowledging that there's more to intelligence, intelligence than just, than just yeah. that. one of the things that struck me about it which i learned later on is that the whole method of teaching in everybody stems from kind of uh working with the the monks and there would be a lectern you know and that's, that's what the way they would do it, was you'd start in the church, and the monk would be there in the you know, 5th, 6th century, and there'd be the big Bible, or the singular book, and that would be the way one person would deliver to the masses. And that's how we replicated schools. The schools came from a person of knowledge who knew and gives it out and tells everybody, which is flawed. Completely. As an idea, as an ideology, and as a kind of method of communication. So, you know, it does make me wonder... Um, what would have happened had we have redesigned the way that schools went. And one of the things that was um, really lucky for me when I was... Uh, I mean, I left school when I was about 15. I was kind of asked to leave, that's what they call it politely, because I wasn't really doing much work. And I went to another school up in Leicester, which was designed in a completely different way, which was uh, a circular school, uh, actually designed on the, the principle of the shape of a pineapple. Now, I know this sounds a bit crazy, but this is true. And it was a circular building with one level. Um, there were no, you know, they didn't have all these many layers. And you didn't have those endless corridors, with, you know, which the regular schools at that time used to be you know, made up like that. So it was, and we had carpet on the floor, and we had nice chairs, and we called the teachers by their Christian names. And it was very, and there was no uniform. So it was a very kind of laissez-faire kind of... Um, <laughs> new way of doing things. And that actually, when I look back now, at the time I thought, oh my God, what is this place? Because I'd moved when I was 15 up to Leicester from London, having lived in a kind of you know, big urban environment. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit scary at first. But then I realised that actually this place was heaven on earth. 
And one of the places, they, one of the things they had there was a, um, a drama department and a music department. So we used to go off and kind of get guitars out and become a band. And they used to have these things called the sounds concerts, which we used to do every um, every few months or so. And um, we would just play and do bits and excerpts from plays and things and. So it was all kind of perform. There was a bit of a performance ethos there. So, so was it only when you went to the, the school in Leicester that you actually? Yeah, I mean, it was. Then, well, I, I then realised that you know academic things wasn't my bag, and uh, I had a teach a couple of teachers there um, who were English teachers who were just. I think most people, if they're lucky enough, they get one person who you know inspires them in some way. Yeah. You know, and I was very lucky. I got two. And both of them in the same school. One of them was completely nuts and brilliant. And he took us out on a... Um, I think that's when it started. I started to think, oh, this could be interesting. Was we did a recreation of the uh, Canterbury Tales, you know, Chaucer's Tales. Perfect. And we went to Canterbury. We wandered around, dressed up as all the monks and the nuns and all this... And we kind of, and it was kind of nuts. And we went and we did, you know, we were like traveling players. And doing that meant that we were able to develop, you know, connections with audiences. Um, it meant that we, you know, we, we, we learned about performing for money, <laughs> very useful for, uh, for, for actors. And, I, and, and it, it felt like there was something you could do that was, you know, it meant that this, what I thought initially was this dry, dull text, you know, this Chaucer. Oh my God! Who wants to do Chaucer? Suddenly turned into this kind of living, breathing thing, and it became real for, for me and for other people. And I think we all got off on it as a as a thing. Um, and then I was asked to do, you know, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Kind of questions, which stumps most people when you're seventeen. And uh, one of the guys said, "Why don't you try drama school for an audition?" We've been doing a couple of plays. I played. Uh, we did production of Frankenstein. We actually wrote a play to, with a local playwright called David Campton about a le legend of uh, the, the Wigston Highwayman, George Davenport was his name. It was a real guy. And so they brought this real playwright in and we actually kind of created this play. So there was an active drama thing there, you know. Yeah. And um, they said, I should audition for drama school. And my first question was, what's a drama school? I'd never heard of it. I didn't know. I had no idea. Where. I mean, nowadays, you know, you think it's, they're everywhere. But then, we're talking, you know, quite 1975 in Leicester, which is like, you know, 200 miles away from London. Did you audition for many? I auditioned just for Rada, actually. Just for that? Yeah. 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 I got in as well. So that was cool. But I didn't know, I didn't know about that. I just went, I went, the only reason we went to Rada was because my dad had heard of Rada and that was it. He didn't know any other one. You're pretty much now the envy of, I'd say, 90% of actors out there who never got the opportunity or never got the chance. I think, well, I mean, it is one of those things, and it has, it, it stays with you, you know. Um, it's, it's a very useful thing, place to go, definitely, mm. definitely. In that experience of drama school, mm -hmm. how did it set you up then for uh, the life well, after? I'm, it sets you up as, as best as any, anywhere it can, really. Um, we did, I think we did 35 plays in three years. And, and when I say plays, they weren't all full plays. There were, some of them would be short scenes from, or they'd be, you know, kind of um, 
uh, like one app players sometimes, and smaller things, you know. But they'd be um, that in itself. I think the, the fact that you're repeating and doing it often and over and over does have a uh, an effect because that's what often people, you know, the problem with our business is that most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got to find ways to, you know, to, to, to recreate that and replicate that, really. So I think it was a, it was a great experience. Actually, I loved it. I came alive. I just thought this was great. This was nuts. Can you remember, can you remember what the audition was like to get in? My audition? Yeah, it was horrendous. I, it was ghastly. I, I, did, um, I did Richard II, which I didn't know what Richard II was. I'd never read the play. So I went out and bought an LP. You may not know what LPs are. I mean, literally, these were kind of like, um, but this would be, it's not like kind of, you know, there, there was a thing called the Argo uh, recordings, and there were sort of like versions on Shakespeare, uh, and uh, they had a guy called Richard Pascoe, wonderful actor, playing Richard II. And my uh, mum and dad had seen him at Stratford play and thought he was great. So they said, well, why don't you, you know, get hold of this... Um, uh, LP and see if you you know see what it's like. So I put it on and I listened to it and I tried to copy him. And this, the principal, uh, years later, said that um, it was dreadful, really, really dreadful. And I think about it now because I do a lot of coaching for actors. Yeah. And the idea of anyone actually trying to copy someone else to get in is kind of like the worst thing you could possibly do. But I didn't know that at the time. Mm. But the, 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 what happened was, the reason I got it was because of the other play that we did, which was Beckett, I did, um, um, which I didn't even know how mad this was, was uh, Waiting for Godot. I did Lucky's speech, you know, this great long outburst that he had. And I did that. And I think that the, 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 the principal years later said to me that, that, that he liked the Lucky, but the Richard II was absolutely dire. That was his work. So, um, I'd say it must have been better than well, good well, because I, I, I suspect it was there was something because I've done a lot of audition I can see the way people kind of you know relate to play pieces or don't and I didn't relate to Richard II at all because I couldn't get it but lucky slightly crazy yep <laughs> maybe that was where I was at the time yeah. you know as a person I don't know but certainly made some sense to me and um, kind of ironic that here I am in Ireland yeah. Having done Shakespeare and Beckett, and Beckett it's yeah. kind of weird. You were saying actually with your uh, your parents, your parents saw Richard II. Yeah. So they obviously were an influence on yourself as well. Very much so. Day. Yeah, I mean, well, without there was never any pushing or anything because there's nobody, no one in our family's room. They're all in t they're all teachers. Um, my dad both retired now. Mum and dad both teachers. Um, dad was a lecturer. My sister's a teacher. My uncle's a teacher. My other auntie's a teacher. They're all teachers. Virtually everyone I know is a teacher. So um, that's even, your, even yourself, TJ. I am, I do, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, I rebelled against it for a long time, then I realised I was quite good at it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to do that then. Oh, okay. You know, but I do, I love it actually. I really enjoy Great. it. Yeah, yeah. What, do you, um, what do you find is the most challenging thing about acting? About, I suppose, not even that, what was the most challenging thing about uh, acting in the early years? In the early years? Um, probably just getting work. I mean, you know, trying to... Did that come easily after college? Well, I came out of drama school. I, came, I, I got a, uh, what was called an equity card then. And, uh, the they, they used to have a system where you get the provisional equity card, which we don't have anymore here, but I mean, it was used to do 40 weeks 
and you had to prove that you were able to be employed for 40 weeks before you'd get your full card, which actually was a pretty good system, I, I felt, because it meant that you had to show some kind of connection and you know, that you were able to sustain something. So we did that um, for a while. I did, and I was lucky enough to, to, to get some work fairly early on in TIE doing, you know. My first job actually was um, uh, uh, Mr. Grump and the Clown. You've probably never seen it for five-year-olds. And uh, I played the clown. And we, I said we'd go around with a red nose and, and uh, we toured four shows a day, five days a week. It was like, uh, unbelievable. It was really tough, and but at the time we were paid thirty-five pounds a week, which was like a fortune, believe it or not. So it it was the best money in town. So I was I was thrilled to start off with that, and then I gradually started doing little bits of you know little bit here, and then you know some time out, and, and I go. The rep system was very big in England then. It's not so much now, but you could go and do. I would do. I did a year at Exeter. I did. Um, year at Birmingham, I did two years at, in, in Northcott, I did a year at York, um, you know, you, you go for a whole season, yeah. and you play all these crazy parts and bizarre, you know, and it was great because it stretched you and made you kind of more, um, you know, and you really screwed it up sometimes, you know, you'd be casting some play and you think, why am I playing an Australian journalist? <laughs> I'm completely, you know. And then you'd start learning that, you know, and you'd start making these terrible kind of acting choices. Uh, and, and that's what's kind of happened. And you'd, you'd do what it was like that. It's kind of just mayhem. Really. And you learn from that. You learn all the time because you realise, um, I mean, they, you hear, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, you've got, you, you, you only learn by failing, by screwing it up. But we judge failure as a negative thing. And I don't. I think it's a positive thing. Because it's just another way of learning that actually that didn't work. So try this. Try it differently. Yeah, yeah. do something different. If it doesn't work, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Do something different. Do something new. Did you ever consider giving up? And if you had given up, oh, yeah. where would you be right now? Uh, well, if I had given up, well, I can't answer that. I don't know, but... What would you like to have done? Or was this... I've you, no, I've always wanted to be an Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I've always kind of like... I've loved that. I just like it. I like communicating with audiences. I like, you know, big theatres and things and televisions and I like all, and I like stories. And I like telling stories and I think that's what it comes out of. Um, and I but what would I do? I don't know. I'd probably end up teaching something I would think, or directing. I have directed a few little short films and things like that and I may yet do a feature. I've got an idea for one of them. Maybe working on, but you know things like that. So, but it'd probably be in this kind of business because I kind of like it, really. Oh, yeah. But uh, did you ever consider giving up? Yes, I mean, I, I think everyone does in in, in the business. And is it almost like a rite of passage? I think it is a rite of passage. I think it's to be honest. If you can't get through that, you can't. Nothing will happen because you're not committed enough in the end. Because if you start thinking to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to give up now because there's not enough work coming in, then you're left with questions. And those questions are always the same thing. Is it something in me? Uh, is it something in the business? Is it the country? Is it where I am? That, often, that happens here a lot. You know, you talk to actors here, they kind of go, I've got to move to LA or I've got to go to, because there's not enough here. You know, I've heard that so many times. And there's a, there's a degree of truth in that. 
and yet there are a lot of people who do manage to sustain something. So there is, you know, there is, there's a, there's a, there, there are hard truths yeah. that come in, and often that means you have to do something like maybe looking at yourself, which is the biggest thing people don't really want to do. It's actually have to look in, in, in my experience, yeah, yeah because the, it may be you, you're generating kind of negative vibes when you go into the auditions, you know, mm -hmm. and I've certainly done that. I know I have, and. Uh, I haven't met an actor who hasn't. You know, you you can cause your own downfall really easy by the way you go into a room, the way you communicate with um, casting directors, producers, directors. So you you can shortchange yourself very quickly. Yeah. So, but so to, to to have the courage to look at that and sort of say, is it is it me? Am I actually doing something about? Is it me that's causing this? Uh, I certainly went through that a lot. And still do. I can constantly kind of keep an eye on what's going on, and you know, other things I need to do. Do I need to open up this area of myself? Or do I need to improve here or get better at that? Or constantly looking at it because it, it evolves all the time. I figure. But yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You performed uh, in obviously a number of uh, films and television shows, um, such as Oliver Stone's Alexander, and yes. The Tudors and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, any role you enjoy playing more than others? Out of those? Out of, or, uh, out of everything. Well, I really enjoyed, I, I did a show at the moment called Da Vinci's Demons, which is obviously yes. Fox, and I love doing that. I think that's great fun. Because um, it's crazy um, and uh, just a bit insane as a, as a, as a concept. Um, I love doing that. Um, what character do you play in this? I play Lupo Mercuri, who's the cur curator of the, the uh, Vatican Archives. And, uh, where else? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's a great character. I, mean, I like it. I just enjoy it. Um, I really enjoy playing um, Philip II of Spain when we did Don Carlos here, which is a Rough Magic production. I love doing that. That was awesome. Um, Why? It, by Mike Poulton from Schiller, this is Schiller play, and that was great. But that was killed, nearly killed me. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. I mean, it's like it was a three and a half hour long show, and um, but nobody ever worried about the time. It just flew. It was so brilliantly written, and it was packed out. We did it in project. We completely sold out the entire thing, and it was just incredible. Incredible. Um, have you ever feared uh, being typecast? No, any, any well, in a way, uh, I, I loved also doing Thomas Berlin in the Tudors. I mean, I loved doing that. That was great. I loved doing that. That was brilliant. Um, I, have I feared being typecast? Well, to a certain extent, you are always typecast because the business is about typecasting. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, they like to put you in you know, certain roles, certain yes. roles and things like that. Um, but I try and kind of, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to vary that with theatre. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of, I always work to see if I can shift things in, in, in television. So, you know, whenever that happens, uh, I certainly wouldn't repeat something. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I think every actor's wary of it. Um, but, um, so I think maybe you adapt to it. Yeah, I think, well, you, you do become a bit niche -y, you know, as an actor. And uh, one of the ways you become relatively successful is by becoming a bit niche -y. 
you know, because you become the go-to guy for that thing. For that thing. And you, but you've got to find out what that thing is. Um, you know, if you look at somebody, say, like Mark Strong, for example, you know, and you kind of go, you know, you're, you're probably not, your first thought wouldn't be to cast Mark Strong as a romantic lover. Or as um, Dracula. Or as Dracula. In, uh, in the Sky Harris production, she's in a tournament, he's playing, uh, yeah. what's Dracula's name again? The Nosferatu. Um, Nosferatu. Oh, um, but you know what I mean? You wouldn't automatically think of that. But then maybe that would be a brilliant bit of casting, you see. So actors know that we think we can do everything. That's our problem. We think we can do everything. And we probably can't. Probably. Probably. <laughs> and and who, who are you the go-to guy for? I kind of, I'm getting a bit niche about kind of like sort of slightly devious, manipulative kind of characters. Well, my mum... I uh, heard you doing this today. Uh, <laughs> she's very excited. Um, she said, "Oh, he's that guy who always plays kind of nasty people, whom you always feel huge sympathy for." Well, that's you see, that's a kind of a niche thing. Yeah. And like whether you know whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it's also something I would certainly, I would definitely work on because to me, if you play any character, you know, so they, with Thomas Boleyn, he was always written down and the way it was written brilliantly by Michael Hurst always wrote this thing you know he's clearly a scheming manipulative kind of quotes devilish kind of character which is very brilliant but he does sell his daughters into <laughs> he pimps his daughters basically to the, to the king of England you know so you could say judgmentally he's a nasty piece of work because he does that nowadays you know in a contemporary thing yeah, most people would agree but if you can find another way in Another way that makes you kind of go, oh, maybe there's something. Ah, why is he doing that? You know, and for me, it was always trying to find out. I, I made kind of decisions about, you know, that he was trying to get his daughters into the court with the king because he was really wanting to help them and advance them. Right. So the audience can judge it and say that's scummy <laughs> that's a scumbag thing to do to your daughters you know you shouldn't really do that and yet you could if you find something else as an actor then you've got something else to play then you've always got a bit of contrast and variety in there you know so that's kind of that's the that's the lack of master plan but that's it <laughs> uh, how do you um how do you find your way into a character? How do you engross yourself in... Um... It depends on the character, really. Uh, you know, with Shakespeare, like we've just done, I mean, De Shakespeare, you just look at the text and read the text over and over and over and over and over because it's all there. It's all in the words. You don't need to, you know, do anything else, really. Just keep reading until it consumes you. And... Yeah, let it become... Because the language will tell you. And he's, because it was written, you know, at a certain time, it tells you the clarity of thought that's going on at a certain time. So you've just got to get really into that. But um, say for Da Vinci's Demons, say, um, I certainly did a whole lot of research about, you know, the Vatican and, uh, and um, what was going on there. And then I read up a lot about Da Vinci and all that. So I, I knew a lot about them historically. Mm -hmm. But that really, to me, that's, that's kind of like the um, contextual stuff. That's sort of the... Um, intellectual work which you have to do you've got to do the basic facts of the character yeah. but then it comes down to what's going to actually get your juices flowing and for me it's usually uh, an animal 
he says. Uh, and uh, I pretty much, well, for Thomas Boleyn, I based him on an eagle. And I know this sounds a bit weird to those, but there was something about an eagle that was like always sitting upright and they've got these big talons and they've got talons and they've got these beaks and they've got these incredible eyes that look at you. And then within seconds they can go, and they can kill you in seconds. But they can also retreat. I just thought it was a cool image, you know. And oddly enough, it turned out to be one of the crests of uh, Thomas Boleyn. It's actually just an eagle. It actually is, isn't it? And we had to do a scene, actually, with, um, with an eagle, which was amazing. I don't know if you ever had a falcon come flying at you. Yeah, yeah. Have you done it? <laughs> it's a bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's so, mm-hmm. it's kind of really exciting. Mm-hmm. You have this little, you know, you've got a leather glove and you hold a little bit of dead mouse and you put your hand up and then suddenly from over there this massive bird comes and these wings are, and you feel this rush of this thing coming at you and then suddenly this, you know, this, the, the falcon lands and and it was, it, it kind of felt like the perfect sort of metaphor for the character anyway. I mean, that's the, and Lupo Mercuri, I couldn't figure a way into him. So what I, the name was ringing a bell with me. I thought Lupo means uh, wolf. And Mercury kind of signified like mercurial. Mm-hmm. So I thought cha- a changeable wolf. I quite like the idea of that. So I, that, that's kind of what I've taken in for, for that. So that's, that's what I did. And uh, the character you just played in Quirk? Yeah. Uh, who I didn't use an animal for that because I didn't really need to so much for that one. I just kind of, um, I, but what I did with that really was I decided, I made a decision not to read the books because some people would say that's mad, but for me that really gets, um, gets in the way of, of uh, the script that you've got to play. Because the script you've got to play, that's what you've got. The books are a completely different form and very, very, um, uh, just a whole different ball game. Um, and uh, so I wanted to just basically, you know, I didn't want to come away thinking, oh, I read the book and the book said, you know, he had these different lines here and they were much better than the ones you've got to say. That would be terrifying, you know, or, you know, something that was, that was so specific that I just thought it would get in the way. And I'm, I'm really glad I made that decision, actually. I think a lot of actors do that, though. And, you know, I was watching an interview recently with, um, with a few Game of Thrones um, actors, and they basically said the same thing. They don't read the books, they haven't yeah. read them, and they don't want to, because their character that they get yeah. is constantly develop- yeah. like developing throughout the series. Absolutely. They don't want to have to read on and go, yeah. all right, this happens, yeah. or... Yeah, 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 you don't want to know. Sometimes it's better to not know, I think. Um, but with, the, with Quirk, what we did mainly in terms of, because it was, um, um, it's essentially a family drama, you know, from our point of view. So there was Michael Gambon, Gabriel Byrne, uh, me, and we had um, Ashley Franciosi who played um, Phoebe, my daughter, and Jerry Somerville who played my wife. And the five of us would become this, we were a group. And we had to try and see if we could come up with, you know, what were the dynamics over the years because the audience meet them at a certain point, but there's obviously there's a backstory. And we came up with these couple of couple of ideas was that um, um, that Gabriel and I made a decision that because he was the illegitimate kind of, he wasn't really supposed to be there. We weren't. We were 
he was a half brother, that we would have been raised in the same house. So we would have grown up as if we were brothers. So we had to try and figure out what that was about. So we did an awful lot of talking about that. And then we came to a conclusion, which was that um, Malachi, my character, want, wanted everything that he had, and he wanted everything that I had. So, you know, my character was kind of, sort of very ainly retentive and very kind of, you know, a bit of a pain in the ass, really, to be honest. Um, and, uh, you know, um, was a bit pedantic and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and living by the book and doing all that. And Gabriel's character was sort of wild and kind of crazy, alcoholic, you know. But he, so I was envious of his, you know, looseness. And he was envious of the fact that I kept a family together and, you know, raised a child and all that. So it gave us this, so, so it wasn't just, you know, Cain and Abel, I hate you because you took my mum away from me. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, a bit boring. But we actually thought, no, there's something that you do that I want. I wish I had that. And it made it more, I hope, a bit more human in terms of, you know, what it is that, uh, that you because know, it's quite natural to think that, you know, someone's got something I haven't got. I think it made it a bit more uh, relatable to people, especially yeah, families hopefully, that have it. There is always that kind yeah, of that sort of edge underneath. Something, there's something there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's good. Yeah. Uh, actually, while, while we're talking about um, television, many of the people that we have interviewed yeah. um, have commented on how television shows have become, I suppose, more uh, engrossing than film. Yeah. Do you agree? Yes, I think I do really overall. I think it's mainly down to the form, the fact that you can tell stories over a longer period of time. I mean, I'm, I'm a massive box set man, you know, and I, I love what getting in really engrossed in a story, yeah. you know. Um, and You just can't you, get that really with film. Yeah, I mean, you can at times. You, you can, but you, you, to me, the most successful films of all time was, you know, be the, the Godfather trilogy, you know, the fact that you can watch the whole thing, you know, over time. Yeah gives you a much deeper understanding of what the character is, you know. Um, and with television, you get a longer time to do that. You know, when you've done the whole of Breaking Bad, you know, and you, you know, I mean, you... you okay, you, you, you well, let me tell you, it's not good. But, but uh, when you do do it, and you do the whole thing, you, it, it, it's, uh, it's like a life. And you oh, yeah. feel, yeah. you know, you... You get the ups and the downs, and you suffer, and you hate them, and you love them, and it's more real for me, anyway. I think I think everyone feels that. Most oh, no, I, 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 well, I, I think sort of same anyway from yeah. from watching like The Wire and watching Spiral yeah, yeah. and Breaking Bad. I mean, you yeah. see it all. Yeah. And it's yeah, yeah. You really get with the characters yeah. more so with film, although that film has its place as well. Oh, of course it does. Absolutely. And there is something about the sitting in a dark room that is just... What is wonderful about film is sitting in the dark room with other people. Mm -hmm. That is the difference, I find. I mean, it's, it's very much like the sort of theatrical experience. And that is priceless. Um, you know, that you can be with... Being in a, in a room... I mean, you know, going to watch Blair Witch Project when it first came out, the very first time with 600 people, and nobody knows what this... Sound does, <laughs> you know, and everyone being terrified of what was going on was is, is fantastic. I remember, you know, I, in Jaws, you know, when do you remember when the, the, the head comes down? Yeah. 
I've never. I mean, the whole still, auditorium. still, to, like, still to this day, it's it's like, I only watched it last year, and the yeah. same thing, <gasps> and you get, and you know what's happening. You know yeah, what's you coming, know what's coming and, it's, and you start to, but then it becomes another level, doesn't it? You know, looking, and you kind of go. That collective feeling is fantastic in film, which you don't get in television at all. No, um, they have, the, they have their pros and cons. They do. They do, they do. both. But we'll keep them both. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> definitely. We like both. We like both. Um, screenwriting is also a passion of yours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I, I, I wrote a film that the BBC did, and I sold a couple of other things, and and um, you know, and I, I got a lot out of that. Um, but um, it, it's time uh, for me. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of more like a, a fabulous hobby when I get the time. And when I do get the chance to do it, I love it because it's great. I've got a whole script ready to go at the moment, actually. I have it, you know, written. I've got the treatment written and I just need the time, <laughs> you know. I've got to find the four weeks when I can just go and block time and just go, right, psh, psh, nothing else. Yeah. You know? that's, the, that's the only way it really works for me, you know. Um, screenwriting on the net. Yeah, uh, which is no longer there. So it's not. No, it's not. But there is another site there is there now called nlpforactors.com and that's, that's still going. And I, I've got 700 members there now and that kind of like yeah. working on that, which is great. That's great. Yeah, yeah I mean, I do a lot of this. Um, essentially what I do with that is I, um, I teach actors about the psychology of performance so that they master their acting auditions and get better results. You know, which you know, and by results I kind of mean you know you create more impact, more influence, and the, more income, oh, yes. which is uh, <laughs> quite important these days. So that's the theory of it. And why did you? Why did you? Say because that? because um, I l like I like the idea of passing things on. I like the idea of engaging with people, and I like um, sharing skills, and I like sharing experiences that you've you know, and helping people to avoid some of the. Um, the terrible mistakes that I made—that <laughs> kind of thing—that helps quite a bit. And I suppose, to a certain extent, you know, there is truth in to know what you do. You need to be able to teach it. Yeah. Because you have to clarify for yourself. Yes, you, you do. do Absolutely. And I found that that's one of the biggest, the best things is that you. I do a lot of Skype coaching, things like that, working with people on auditions. And when I do that, I find myself having to go through. And getting really clear about what it is that I think, you know, cause, you know, it's very easy to have a sort of theory, but you've actually got to do it, and, and it's very different in practice where you're dealing with. Fear. I mean, I do a lot of work with um, people who have kind of like um, fears, you know, of auditions, uh, people who get scared about, you know, performing and stage fright and things like that. And I mean, I'm also what's called I'm trained in this thing called NLP. You know about this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm what's called a master practitioner of that, and so I use some of those skills as well, which are sort of psychological skills and techniques that actually enable you to, you know, make the changes that you wish to see happen. And uh, I, it's great for actors, and it's it's certainly one of the reasons touch with why I'm still working. Definitely, you know, because I use that for my auditions. You see, yeah. Um, yeah. Outside of acting. Your hobbies. I read recently in a article in the Irish Times. Uh, you're a keen swimmer. I am a keen swimmer. Yes. I like swimming. I like swim. I, I I swim in the sea whenever I can. Um, I haven't recently because we've been doing the and it's too cold. But uh, in the summer, I definitely will. Oh yeah, I love. Can be colder than uh, Christmas Day. Well, the Christmas Day swims are, are legendary down that way, and uh, 
I've, I've, uh, I didn't go last year. I actually got the heebie-jeebies last year. You said that's it. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I just, it was just too cold. <laughs> there are, you know. Have you I ever done the Christmas Day swim? No, I was in the other day in Skull. Ah. Yeah. yeah. It's great though, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. But I, I got out and I was like, God, this is weird. I'm warm. And then my friend said, yeah, that's the first sign of hypothermia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's about right. So I was when you, dying. When you, yeah, exactly. When you see yourself going blue, then you know <laughs> that it's working. But it was lovely. <laughs> yeah. It was lovely. Yeah. No, it is good. But you do feel fantastic afterwards. Yeah. You know? But um, I haven't been for a while now, to be honest. Oh, but, but I still I love it. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, any other hobbies? Hobbies. I get writing a lot of a lot of stuff. The website is very much a big thing for me, and uh, you, you seem know, to be constantly but kept busy. There's always well, something. I'm, I'm always. I, I try and keep. I always think it's one of the things you've got to do. It's one of the things that actors have to do. Um, I, I made a big decision at one point, which is to stop calling myself an actor, and becoming more aware of the fact that I'm a kind of creative person. And when you start to realise you're creative, then you can create. If you call yourself just an actor, then it means you only act. Mm-hmm. Well, I find that actually I unpacked that and I started to realise I, you know, I like making scripts when I can, web, websites when I can, this stuff, like, it's all the same thing. And it's it all informs you. And it all informs yeah, itself, yeah. you know. And then yeah. just um, flicking back to, you know, in terms of how you approach screen acting and uh, acting for stage, mm-hmm. what do you find are the differences? Well, contrary to popular opinion, I think they're pretty much the same thing. Obviously, there's a difference in scale and size, and that's pretty much the only difference, I think. And is there one you enjoy over the other? Well, I, it's like the actor's disease is whenever you're doing, like having just finished doing 12 Night, I love doing that because we had this crazy re- relationship with the audience and, you know, we just finished it on Saturday and it was like doing a rock concert and because everyone was standing up, it was kind of nuts, just crazy. And it was just great, you know, we love all that. And, um, and then when you're doing a play, the first thing you want to do is, okay, I wish I could do some telly. And then whenever you're doing telly, you go, oh, I wish I could do a play. But that's kind of actors that are always a bit like that, seem to me, to be, well, I am anyway. You know, kind of <laughs> never quite satisfied, you know. Yeah. But uh, then you try to learn about that and being zen, about being in the moment and all that. So, you know. But I love them both. I think they're all... They're all good. Cool. And you should just enjoy them when you're doing them. Oh, but also, one thing I think is really important is, this thing, is, is one of the reasons I do keep all these things going is because for actors, being out of work is a, it happens all the time. So you've got to learn to handle how to be out of work. It's one of the biggest things they don't teach you at drama school and they never teach you. And it's the biggest curse on our business is that you can have, you know, you can do... In fact, I have a friend who told me... Have you got time for a quick story? Go for it. There's a wonderful actor called Jerry O'Brien who lives over here. And he told me this story. That he was one day he was filming the Pirates of the Caribbean right, with Johnny Depp out in the Caribbean. And he was sitting on this beach on a Sunday and the sun was everywhere and the palm trees and Johnny Depp walks past with his then Vanessa Paradis and they're sipping coconut pina coladas and then he had to wrap up that day and he gets back on the plane he flies back to Dublin that night and signs on the next morning right so he goes into this and he's you know goes into one of the 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 dole offices and they say so what have you been doing (laughs) and he says well actually yesterday I was on a beach in the Caribbean with Johnny Depp 
and that's our business. <laughs> they're probably like, that yeah, is you're, taking, you're taking the piss. Yeah, well, that's right. They didn't believe. And actually, yeah. it's, it's absolutely true. It's one of the most crystal clear stories that, that this business is about. And it goes like that. It's feast to famine. It goes from Caribbean to the dole. It can go like that. And so you've got to find a way to make it a bit more rational, a bit more kind of... Um, grounded. A bit more grounded. And you've got to do what I... And the side, what I do is I teach people how to, to handle that. Because that is, is critical. How you keep yourself going when, when, when there's no work around. Yeah. What do you do then? When you lived over in London, mm. um, obviously you would have worked with the British film industry quite a bit. And yeah. you're back over there and you work with the Irish film industry. Sure. Um, big differences between both? Um, not really. I think they're all, it's all pretty much the same business. Um, okay. But there are definitely differences in terms of, I mean, uh, there's been a big difference because of the, the, when the government put in the, uh, what's it called, 481, um, Section 481, that, that made a huge difference here. Uh, and then England then started to go, oh, hello, this is a good idea, and they've started to do it now, which means that some productions are shifting from here and moving across over there. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing where you want to make sure that people keep producing work here. Uh, I think one of the big problems I find here is that the, these big companies come over, but I'm not sure how many Irish actors get... I don't know the, what the statistics are, but how many actors actually get to work on some of the big shows now, I don't know. And that, I mean, that's a question. I don't really know the answer. It seems that the casting for those are done in London, and then maybe the, the smaller parts go yeah, to... It certainly seems to be yeah. the way it is, and, and I wonder whether the Irish film industry should have a look at that. I wonder. Just to give them more... You know, maybe there's maybe there's an, you know, because there's always there's always a deal struck mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's very important to get the industry over here because you take care of all the I know when we did the Tudors there were massive numbers of um, because the huge numbers of families are yeah. affected by it. You know, you, there's uh, you always have the drivers and their families and you've got all the you know, the, the technical departments and their family, you know, there's makeup and hair you know, there's a lot of people and the actors as as well, but uh, well, I know for example on the Tudors, I think we had some. There was something like I think it was five hundred. Was it five hundred? It was either between between five hundred and a thousand people did get to work on it as actors on the Tudors. So that was pretty good. I think in recent years that's that figure may have shifted, and I don't know what the statistics are, and I'd be keen to find out. Well, it was actually Maybe I, was, I, was, I, was, I have no idea, but I was down. Um, I was actually down around film base uh, two weeks ago, and just happened to be walking around and just saw a huge queue of people outside film base, and they're auditioning for Vikings. So I can only imagine the Vikings is bringing in more people, but that's I don't think that's Irish. Um, but was it auditioning for Vikings? Well, there's extra parts yeah. for... Well, that's extra cast. That's extra cast. That's, yeah. that's a different ball game too. True. So, you know, that's, um, that's kind of easy to... You know, you can always get a supporting artists. But, but for, for actors as well, you know, professional actors, it, it, it's much harder. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting... I think there's going to need to be a debate about that at some point. Um, Hopefully in the near future. Hopefully in the near future. For you, when you made the decision to come back here from London, did that in any way affect the opportunities that 
Did it limit the opportunities that you had? Well, it did, it did in a way, but it also didn't in another, because um, I, I was do, kind of doing a lot of theatre stuff there, uh, and I was doing kind of television roles over there. Um, but um, coming back over here meant that uh, I, yeah, and that's how I got, you know, for example, the Tudors, I got that by coming over here. Um, I auditioned for that here, and then I flew over to London and auditioned there. And uh, you know, so it, a lot of that kind of casting for that sort of those level of parts is done internationally now. I mean, it's very, you know, it is sort of that kind of sort of level, and um, that that's made a huge difference to me. Doing the Tudors has opened so many doors. You know, I can't tell you. So, um, do you still get nervous? Huh? Do you still get nervous? Of what? Audition. You mean in life? Oh, audition. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I always. We, so we've, we, we've had people in, and oh, yeah. they've said, like, you know, generally you have to have some level of nerves. Yeah, there has absolutely. to be something there. Oh, I think that. I, I, but I don't think of. Um, I don't think nerves are a bad thing. I think they get a bad press. You know, oh, I got nervous. Good. You should. <laughs> you're, you're doing. Um, you're doing this thing. I call it preparation energy. It's like an, it's like when you're getting ready to go on to do a play. You know, if you if you haven't got a little bit of boom boom boom, boom we're coming. You're not quite. You know. You know. You're not, you're not awake. No, I think you it, I think it shows you want it. Yeah, you know, nervous. Not it definitely shows yeah. that this is something that you are really interested. Yeah, in. No exactly. nervous kind of means. No nervous means. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> difference, yeah. You know. Uh, so no, I think it's vital to be a bit nervous. And um, I I like um, what is it F uh, F E A R. What was it? Focused energy, anticipating results. That's not bad. That's I made that bad. up the other day. <laughs> so focused energy, anticipating results or rewards. You know, something like that. That's you're you're going forward. That's what it is. It's a kind of a. It's a. It's a. It's a, it's, a, it's a, an indication that you're alive and awake and ready and looking forward to getting something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> funny thing that's happened on set. Well. Far too many of them, but one that springs to mind was on the Tudors when we were doing. Um, there was a scene that was being shot, and uh, there was a, a, an actor, actress, uh, who was brought in to play the part of a serving uh, girl who was going to have to drop her um, her nightdress and reveal her naked body to the king. And uh, this uh, this woman had decided to sign. She signed the contract, said she would. She was fine with that, and then on the day she actually kind of got a bit panicky and just thought, "Oh, I can't do this." So that put the whole of the everyone got terrified. What are we going to do? We had to get someone else in. And in true film business style, rather than going down the road to someone in Dublin, they flew somebody in from London. You know, it's one of the quick girls. <laughs> get a hold of someone. We need a girl here now. Get her here now. Who have we got? They ring someone. She flies over. Literally three hours later, she comes into the set. She's put out into the costume. She walks into the set, and there's. The king is looking at her, and she has to remove her, her robes and stand there, start naked. And then the cameraman whispers, Oh my God, what? She shaved. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they suddenly realised that the one thing they hadn't checked was that she was kind of, you know, because that's obviously a problem if you're doing a period drama. So, because um, it didn't exist. And so they then had to uh, come up with the... Um, the great solution of uh, CGIing the pubes in, which was, uh, I, I mean, I just think that would have been kind of a curious day at the office. So for all Tudors fans yeah. out there, if you go back, yeah. over, your, if you go yeah. back over your box, yeah. well, that's an unfortunate uh, phrase there. 
but um, <laughs> can you see your in the box there? Yeah, yeah, we got that's 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 one that's gone up on the trivia for uh, for IMDb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Which one was it? Where? Yeah. <laughs> um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old 20 self My now? Oh, God. Um, uh, just enjoy it every single day, whatever's going on. Get out there. Make sure, oh, yeah, do something every single day. One of the things I do on my site, I call it baby steps, which is to make sure you do some baby steps every day because baby steps add up to giant strides. And that's the thing, you know, if you do something for your career, whatever it is that you want to do, make sure you do one little thing. You know, if it's like ringing someone or sending an email or learning a new skill or developing something or communicating to an agent or whatever it is, do something every single day. Because those little tiny little bits will build up, all build up. It's even, in fact, it's known as a, as a Japanese theory, it's called Kaizen. Yeah. Very important. I don't know why I shouldn't do. Shouldn't do a very Japanese accent. That's apologies to any Japanese people. But, uh, but if you if you do these tiny little steps every single day, incremental changes, all add up. And I reckon it's true. If you ever, <coughs> one of the things they do in NLP is called task decomposition. So if you ever want to do any goal, you want to really create something fantastic. You start with the end in mind. You make this big picture in your mind now, this great goal that you want, you know, it might be to win the Oscar or whatever it is, or direct the movie or whatever it is, and you see the, this big image now in your mind of what this goal is that you want, and as you focus on that, you think about all the thoughts and the feelings and the sounds that go along with that, and as you feel that sense of excitement, then you recognise that that's the, that's the picture at the end, and then you track back what has to happen, you decompose the task to figure out what it is that I have to do to actually get to that. So, you know, there's, there will be a logical progression. If you want to do a director movie, say, for example, then prior to that, more than likely, you would have directed a short. Prior to that, you probably would have been to film school if you didn't know. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So there's always a logical progression. But those little steps all add up to yeah, the goal that you're going for. So you need the goal the massive goal that's going to slightly scare you, but you also need to do the, 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 the detailed work, which is these tiny little bits and pieces that build up towards the goal. See what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Big picture, huh? Yeah. We have it here. You have an uh, open <laughs> university degree in arts and politics. No, I no. do not. No, I did two. I, I did two. Um, no, no, no. I, I don't have a degree. I did two, but I did do the open university. Um, I kind of had this thing where I thought I needed to, you know, stretch the brain a bit and do a little bit more than, than I didn't, I didn't, never accepted the fact that I was quite as stupid as all the teachers told me. And so I decided that I'd do something to, you know, get the brain going. So I did the Open University while I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company. We were touring around and I had time in the mornings. I used to get up in the mornings at six o'clock or something and watch all these ancient videos and listen to all these things. And I did arts and politics and I did, um, uh, so arts and humanities and social sciences it was. Oh, okay. So I did a bit of that. So you're kind of right, you know, but it wasn't quite a degree. But I mean, yeah, maybe, you know. But you have some. Like, <laughs> might get an honorary one, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> no, the only reason I ask because we're going yeah. back on uh, that um, yeah. article in the Irish Times. Mm. And you live in Dorking, is it? Yeah. You do. Yeah. Um, from the Irish, it would appear you're quite active within the area and that you'd like to see a change there as well. 
with the grave with the election that just happened there, is there anything that you'd like to see, I suppose, different in Dublin? Is there anything that Well I mean in Dun when Don Leary around there I'd like to see I mean I don't know why I mean to me, I don't know, I'm biased. I believe that one of the great things about Ireland is is the creativity. I think, you know, the music and the singing and the dancing, I mean, I know everyone gives out about it, but, uh, you know, I, I really love it. I think it's great. I think the music and the singing and the dancing and the acting and the drama and the novels and the plays and the poetry are extraordinary. And there's something so bizarre that's so, un so unique that doesn't get done anywhere else in the world like that. So I've never understood why you can't take all these, you know, shops that are f falling apart and put students in there and uh, get them to create and come up with things. I just don't understand. I really well, don't get it. It seems to be a common, it's um, a, a common conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's happened with us, and the majority of people just say, I mean, the arts is probably the first thing that gets caught yeah. in funding from the government every time. So, but that's it. Well, the, the trouble with our business is we're we're the creative ones who look at the solutions, and we kind of go, well, we would do something different with it, but then we don't have the money to, to, to actually back do it up it. to implement. Yeah. And so, I think, in, I think, in some sense. We'll do it anyway, mm. do you know, so because that's why people do it, they yeah. will do it anyway, so the government doesn't have to resource it because yeah. it will be done. Yeah. So, in a way, it's a, it's a vicious circle, yeah. and it's always yeah. been like that. I think that's always been the thing. Trouble is, what we have to do as artists, I think, is we have to actually sort of change that. We have to start thinking more proactively and start, you know. Then, then, you know, what does that mean? You've got to learn, you've got to raise the money. Well, we, then you've got to raise the money. You know, it's got to be done. It's got to be done. That's got to be yeah. done. And being an artist now means you've got to be an entrepreneur as well. Mm. And I think that's shifting. You know, we, we can't just go, give us money. You know, we yes, have to do other things. Yeah. Somehow quantifying what you do in, in language that resonates with the business community. Mm. It's vital. Yeah. yeah. And, well, they have to acknowledge that there is a value in something that isn't necessarily monetary. Sure. It's kind of that sure. But then maybe you can do the two. I mean, you see, it's, this has been the, this is the, the biggest debate for years, mm -hmm. isn't it? You know, the whole thing of you know, money versus art. And, yeah. you know, it, our problem is we all want to create nice things, but they want to, you know, we need the money to do it. So we've got to get real about that as well, I think. Sure, we have to pitch to, to Dragon's Den. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, but, but the um, big question is why aren't artists actually going into Dragon's Den and pitching things? I don't know. I'd say the main thing is because they know the dragons aren't going to be able to make a profit. But, but then maybe there isn't a, but maybe they haven't really thought through the product. Maybe, but I think it's. <laughs> I, I think from my own point of view, yeah. I've seen that. Uh, I think we're a generation that has grown up, I suppose, becoming accustomed to wanting stuff for free. Mm. I mean, you look at it, I mean, oh, yeah. pretty much anyone's able to just download any film or any absolutely. television show for absolutely yeah. nothing, the same yeah. music. So yeah. when it comes to creativity and, uh, you know, coming up with new ideas and entrepreneurship like that, yeah. they want something that's either going to be really, really cheap or free. Mm -hmm. And the flip side to that is that, you know, last year when people were saying that people aren't protesting, that mm -hmm. we're not rallying, mm -hmm. we're not marching, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In a way, I kind of felt that the protest of this generation is just getting on with it because people are, you know, and there is a lot of creativity going on. Yeah. People are. But you have to ask yourself in the end, though, it comes down to what, it's like these are the big NLP questions are what do you want? It comes down to that because, you know, whatever it is that you want, if, if you, you know, if you want to have, you know, a lifestyle like, like 
well, that looks like a certain thing or if you want a certain thing, you've got to go for them, you know, yeah. and you have to take action towards them. Otherwise, nothing will shift, nothing will change. And, you know, this whole notion of, you know, protesting, the, the, protesting in and of itself is kind of pretty meaningless, really, unless it's something is achieved, you know, and it's all, it has to be goal-related because that's the way brains work. And I think especially in Ireland, like, I mean, yeah. you see protesting in Ireland when, mm. even when the students, and I... Mm absolutely admire everything that yeah, they did yeah. to try and get the student fees down that's great but there was no end result there was nothing Greece on the other hand go and protest and they really protest I mean yeah, it's yeah. a right you yeah. know and they achieve something you know, huge but what Tommy Tiernan said uh, in, a, in an interview the other day that Ireland doesn't have the weather for protesting <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can get a, get a yeah, tan yeah, and protest yeah. at the same time Absolutely. and eat a kebab. But yeah. yeah, well, why not? In the yeah. rain, it's just. Yeah, we're not going out today. You're angry anyway. Yeah, yeah, let's why, go. Why become miserable? There's no point yeah. in So let's go and have a drink and let's go and sit in the pub and talk about how miserable we are. Then we can write something really fantastic and make a great book and a great music and great dancing. And make no money from it. Then we get out about it. You see what I mean? It is a cycle. It is, yeah. It is a cycle. And we have to recognise we are part of the cycle. Mm. And then, you know, you become part of the solution or part of the problem in the end, I suppose. But well, hopefully, for, I think for a lot of people, when that actually does happen, when they finally realise that they are part of the cycle, it's too late. Yeah, and then, awesome. what, well, then what happens is that they then kind of drop off and all the dreams that they used to have then disappear. And then what happens is that, you know, 20, 30 years later, they then go, why did I do that? And then you see these people, who are, I see a lot of them, who are kind of like... They're in their fifties now, and they're going, yeah, yeah, shit, and they really regret it, like you wouldn't believe, because they made a choice. They don't realise that the choices they're making now absolutely create the the, the, the people of the future. Yeah, and it completely affects them. I mean, they really they, they only get one shot. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Well, I think our generation were very fortunate with the protesting, and it was certainly in England because it was one of those things everybody did. But it did give you a sense of you know. You've got to fight against the the um, uh, you know, nuclear disarmament or whatever it was, the big issues of the time, yeah. because it meant you had a political voice and you thought you were going to change things, but of course you didn't really in the end. But um, but you felt as if you did. And that, that was kind of quite an important connection, I think, inside the, the brain to think that you can. Because when you believe you can, that's a belief, which yeah. means you can. And if you have a belief that says you can, then you have way more chance of achieving anything. Because if you operate from a position of, yes, I can, then it's more liable to happen. True. Um, we know this now statistically, that it, that's the way it works. You know, the beliefs that you have inside your mind, which are often unconscious, run your life. And if you don't change those beliefs or don't look at them and don't look at them, then you'll only get... There's an NLP phrase which goes, if you keep on doing what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. And it's true, absolutely true in my experience. That, you know, if, if, there's a, if, there's, if, if, if you're always out of work and, you, you know, nothing changes, you've got to do something different to break the pattern. You've got to change. And that's true of individuals as it is of countries. You've got to do something different to break the pattern, otherwise you just repeat. Because on an unconscious level, that's what happens. That's, yeah. what, that's the way humanity is. 
Scary thought, huh? It really is, yeah. Well, really we, really is. we really got into politics. Yeah, yeah. 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 come on. Phil Myland, now let's go rise up. Network. I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> what are your biggest influences? My biggest influences? Yeah. What or whom or... God. Um, well... I, I did an awful lot of work with Harold Pinto when I was a bit younger and I worked with him a lot and he was like awesome. I mean, just the sheer level of commitment and work ethic was unbelievable. So he'd be pretty cool. Um, you I did a reading was, for him during the homecoming in his house, was that right? Yeah, oh, that, that was, um, no, that was um, not the homecoming, that was uh, No Man's Land. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was extraordinary, absolutely incredible. Yeah, that was quite something. Yeah. But I mean, he'd be one of those. David Mamet was a big figure for me for a long time. I, I, I loved, um, who else? I loads of people. Um, I, Ian Holm as an actor, one of my yeah. great heroes, just awesome. Gambon, I mean, just great, great. I mean, some of the stuff he did when he was in you know, his forces were just extraordinary. Never seen anything like it. His King Lear. Absolutely. Good, yeah. Oh. I'd love to see him play now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but he was astonishing. Um, so for me to work with them was great. I mean, yeah, yeah. that was phenomenal. I mean, yeah, working with your heroes who turn out to, to not disappoint you is pretty cool. Um, I have to say, working with Meryl Streep was pretty cool too. Yeah. She was really amazing. So, and she's always been a hero, definitely. Um, Francis Coppola. I mean, I loved the Godfather trilogy. I said earlier, I thought that was extraordinary. Popped up snail, huh? I popped up snail. Yeah, amazing. You know, um, I actually did a. I, I went up to him. I, I saw him in the street in London in Soho once, and I went up to him and I gushed. Well, I, I think from that day on, I stopped gushing. I was so. I literally went up to him. Oh, Mr. Coppola, I just love every single thing you've ever done. You're absolutely amazing. I'm incredible. You're just brilliant. What do you do? This is incredible. It's like, uh oh. Whenever you hear that gush, for me, time to stop. <laughs> yeah, but it's how when you, when, you, when you have somebody as. But he, he did. He blew me away. Oh, yeah, well. He blew me away. So it's fair enough. Well, there's, there's a generation of Ray Allen blew me away. I mean, you know, it was one of those people in the earlier days. You know, absolutely. Um, I love Krzysztof Kieslowski. I loved him for his stuff. The Three Colours Blue was one of my favourite films of all time. Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire. I adored that when that came out. Um, which is Texas. Texas. Oh, Paris, Texas is a class act. You know, I mean, I love David Lynch. I adore, I love one of my favourite. His is um, Mulholland Drive, which everyone thinks is bad, but I think it's brilliant. Um, it's my favourite film of, uh, of Lynch is actually The Straight Story. Love it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a f- fantastic yeah. film, which is even funnier when you read yeah. the back background story to it. It's like it's a Disney film. Immediately when you go Disney, David Lynch, don't quite go together. You're thinking <laughs> it's probably going to be one of the weirdest films you've ever seen, but it's yeah. actually just phenomenal. So simple, so brilliant. Yeah, it's really, really. Oh, it's yeah. great. Yeah, it's really good. Um, but they'd be your biggest influence, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, very much so. And I'm, I'm big. Uh, John Berger was huge. John Berger, Ways of Seeing, that book. Have you ever read that? It was incredible at the time. The Story of Art was a major book. E.H. Gombrich, I thought was an incredible book when I read that. Um, and Da Vinci, absolutely. Da Vinci, Leonardo, just extraordinary character. 
I've, I find him incredible. Um, Has that just come from your research? Actually, I was, I was prior, uh, oddly enough, I was actually talking about him about three or four years ago, saying I wanted to do a film about him. And then two years after that, um, this came through. So it was kind of weird. It's supposed to be that, I suppose. Call of Call of Yeah, I think I do call it that in the end. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um, what's your proudest moment? My in proudest acting. in acting. Something private that I couldn't possibly repeat, but something Ian Holmes said to me. That's all I can say. But hope Ian Holmes listens. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. But he was he was amazing. He, he was just very complimentary about something I'd done, and it was blew me away. Well, you know, when somebody you really rate yeah. says something. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. It's true. Um, yeah. Final question. Future ambitions. And you really, really yeah, hope to do this, right? I'm wondering if I do want to direct a movie. I'm wondering about this. I kind of like keep thinking about it, you know? You know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then I. Uh, yeah, I, I For I, people listening, there's a, a lot of sign language going on right now. So. We are all native by the <laughs> But uh, I. I, I um, <laughs> they don't know that, do they? Isn't that weird? It's no, no, no. We were going to, we were, we were going to reveal it for the end of the series. This is going to have to be the last podcast. I have no now, idea. You know, so, yeah, that's yeah. going to be Yeah. Yeah. Nick Dunning, strip bear. But I'm wondering if I do want to direct a movie or not. I haven't got this script that I want to do. Uh, and I'm wondering whether I actually want to do it. But I haven't seen what happens to people who direct movies. <laughs> I, I begin to wonder sometimes. Um, it's pretty... Uh, yeah, it's pretty tough. I mean, I worked with Kevin Reynolds a couple of years back, who did, you know, those, uh, we did Hatfields and McCoys, which is this uh, Western thing. We shot in Romania with Kevin Costner, and we were all playing cowboys. And seeing him at the end of his shoot was like, my God, I've never seen a man so tired in my life. But brilliant, it was brilliant, and he was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic, but what it does here. Dream. I've never seen it, because they're, you know, the director's there all the time. Actors go back to the trailer. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> Kate, final question. Go on. Go on, Kate. Uh, your secret talent. Your secret talent. My secret talent. talent. Yeah. A secret talent. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, I can play the Willem Tell Overture on my head with a pencil. Wow. Or, or, or I can play the Willem Tell Overture on my teeth. With a pencil. Do you want a pencil? Can we do it now? Yeah. <laughs> this is an exclusive this is conversation. An exclusive. <laughs> this is one of those things. Here you go. Talent's going, that's probably one yeah. of the best. <laughs> one of the rarest. Seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's then, much used, you know. Much <laughs> oh, it now. Is. <laughs> uh, Nick, Donnie, thank you very much. You're very, very, very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.